long ago there was an upper world and a lower world. In the upper world were all the things of Mother Earth, the trees, the hills, rivers, animals, birds, everything except the people, because the people existed only as spirits in the underworld. One day a being removed her head and tossed it up into the sky. This became the moon. The moon began to have a special effect on the world and even had effect reaching down into the underworld and the spirits became the people. The people wanted to go to the upper world, but they did not know the way. So they prayed for assistance. A deer appeared and guided the people through the obstacles of the underworld, through rocks and soil, mud and crevices, until they came to a portal that shimmered above them. It was full of water. Their deer jumped up into the portal, and the people grabbed onto the deer, and it pulled them towards the upper world, swimming and swimming up. Up above some springs in the upper world flew a water bird, It dove down into the water, grabbed the deer and the people, and pulled them into the upper world. And this is how the people came to be on Mother Earth. This is a creation story of one of the Coatecan bands living in South Texas, northern Mexico. This is the creation story I heard from a female member of the Tate Pilum Coatecan Nation, the people of the earth, or this earth. They are a tribal community, affiliated bands and clans of the Payaya, Pacoa, Borado, Pacawan, Papanak, Irbi Piame, Zarame, Pahala, Tilihai Nations, and others collectively known as Coatecans. Coatecans. They lived in the modern northern Mexican states of Coahuila, Tamaulipas, Nuevo Leon, northern Potosi, and in south Texas. They believe the springs in this creation story are the headwaters of the San Marcos River, a sacred site. And they point to ancient artwork on stone walls near Comstock, Texas as evidence for this. And before it existed, the land that is now San Antonio was called by them Yanaguana, the land of spirit waters. Now I remember learning very little about the Coetacon nations in the past. They're usually sped over and forgotten. Some old notes I have even said that they are extinct. Well, they're not extinct. They're not federally recognized, but they're not extinct. Often when you did hear about them, they're just the, they're the mission Indians. They're the Indians that had the Spaniards had the most success, the most success with in their mission efforts. And... As I said, even though they are not yet federally recognized in the United States, and in some sources I've seen they've been declared extinct, the Coetacons are alive and well and working to preserve their culture and heritage. The 77th Texas State Legislature recognized Tate Pilum Coetacon Nation as 
the aboriginal tribal families of Texas in 2001. The city of San Antonio, by proclamation, recognized them as the first tribal families of San Antonio. The Archdiocese of San Antonio recognized them as the indigenous tribal families of the five Indian missions of San Antonio. They're still fighting to be recognized by the government, scientists, and the general public. But we'll touch on modern Coatecons at the end of the lesson. The focus for this Texas history lesson is to look at their way of life at the time of contact and just before. For over 10,000 years, as we have seen in earlier lessons, people who lived in South Texas and Northern Mexico, and the Coatecons were the culmination of those thousands of years of adaptation to a very harsh region in the state of Texas. The northern boundary of South Texas has no really defined border line, but most people will recognize that if you start at San Antonio, go over to Maverick County, the west draw a line back towards the east through the San Antonio area, and then end up on the Gulf Coast, you have a pretty decent idea of what the where the northern bounds of South Texas is. The west and south border of the, the Rio Grande, which separates Texas from Mexico's Coahuila, Nuevo Leon, and Tamaulipas, are the west and south border of South Texas. Now, the Coatecans did not know that border, the river, as a separator. It was just a river, a source of life for them. So living on either side of it, they just knew that area as home. And the eastern border of South Texas is the Gulf of Mexico. The most southern area of South Texas is the referred most often that to as the Valley or Rio Grande Valley. Um, it's now a successful area for citrus fruit cultivation. The easternmost portion is the Gulf Coastal Bend with its coastal salt marshes, estuaries, and wetlands. And the central and western part of South Texas, where many of these Coatecon bands lived, is known as the Brush Country or the South Texas Plains. It's more of a semi-arid climate, while the area from the coastal inland to the San Antonio area has a more humid and subtropical climate. And as you travel farther and farther south, it transitions into a more savanna-like climate with extremes of wet and dry seasons. I like A.C. Green's description in his book, The Five States of Texas. He says, uh, the geographical term South Texas is deceptive. South Texas ordinarily would reach from San Antonio southward. But with border cities like Del Rio and Eagle Pass, while not necessarily south, are included in South Texas. And with the towns around Rio Grande City make up the border... South Texas stretches along the Gulf of Mexico with Padre Island from Corpus Christi to Brownsville, a world of its own. Self-contained, little dependent upon the rest of Texas, crossing from Corpus to Laredo, you pass through the hot, dry, lonely range country that has guided the destinies of South Texas since the first Spanish settlements. Some villages in South Texas, unfound in hidden corners, go back to the 17th century by tradition, if not by record. I would add to Green's excellent description that this hot, dry, lonely range country also guided the destinies of those that lived there before the Spanish settlements. And high probability is that these settlements were usually where they people before had lived either on a semi-permanent or permanent basis. Now, the, the river 
the sources of water were sacred. The sacred rivers of South Texas would have started in the north with the four branches of the Guadalupe River. It's the one of the northernmost rivers of South Texas. It's joined by the Comal River in New Braunfels, the sacred San Marcos River west of Gonzales, and the San Antonio River north of Trevoli. Below these rivers is the Aransas, a fairly short river that flows into Copano Bay. Further south is the Nueces River, with its tributaries the Frio, Alta Coscosa, and the Leon. Then there's the very short Mission River, and then the Great River, the Rio Grande, is the southernmost waterway of importance for the Coyotecans. Living on the Texas side of the border, they would not have considered it anything special other than that as a really important source of life and would have looked at the other side of the river as theirs as well. While many descriptions of South Texas region and home of the Coatecons in Texas include the coastal area, we're not going to look that closely at it right now because much of the coastal area was dominated by another band we're going to look into very soon, the Karankawa. Some people even say that there's there's possibly really strong possible for connections between the Karankawa and Coatecans. But we'll look into that later. In Mexico, the Coatecans lived as far south as the Rio Panuco, which, along with its tributaries, ultimately drains the Valley of Mexico containing Mexico City and includes the states of Tamaulipas, Nuevo León, northeastern Coahuila, northern San Luis Potosi, and northeastern Zacatecas. Now, there were dozens and dozens, hundreds of small independent bands that inhabited these this vast area. And they are grouped together not because they really even spoke us the same language, because many of them didn't speak it, but there is a language... Coatecan, that a common linguistic stock that many of them spoke branches of that, but not necessarily all of them. We'll see. There's one group that lives on the Rio Grande. They they say they're existent today and say we aren't Coatecans. Well, that's fine. But you lived in this area, you're part of this culture group, as we'll see, that lived a similar lifestyle. That's why I'm including everybody in this area, um, whether they actually spoke Coatecan or not. And we'll see, it just came a, it came a handy catch phrase for just capturing all of these bands because they had a vast number of names. Um, between the numerous bands, there were minor cultural differences, but they also had many significant similarities. Many of the differences appeared to be a result of different environmental conditions and resources that changed as you moved from San Antonio in the north to Rio Panuco in the south. Population levels varied, but bands probably had 100 to 300 people, and some might have had as many as 500. Housing, weaponry, clothing, survival techniques varied amongst the bands, and the differences between the Payayas in San Antonio and the Coaticans in Tamaulipas were probably significant. They were not a single culture, nation, or ethnic group, or they weren't, like I said, even a one language. But David LaVere best explains it. They were a wide scattering of bands with similar hunting gather, with a similar hunter gathering economy. 
adapted the arid country of southern Texas and northeastern Mexico. There are enough similarities that we can discuss them as a whole while recognizing that there were autonomous small bands that lived in the area. Starting in the north, the Payayas, three or more affiliated bands that lived in an area focused around San Pedro Springs, the side of modern San Antonio. Southeast of them, between the San Antonio and Guadalupe rivers, lived the Aranamas and Tamiques. South of the Aranamas lived at least a dozen bands known as Orejones along the lower Nueces. The Pacal lived in an area northeast and upstream of the Orejones, near the junction of the Frio and the Nueces. West of the Pacal were the Casale Tarcodoms, near the confluence of the Pecos and the Rio Grande. The Catajanos lived down the Rio Grande from them. Then there were the Carrizos, farther south. They are the group now known as the Carrizo Coma Crudo that are active in trying to preserve ancestral lands along the border. That will I'll mention them in a little bit. The Barados lived down near Brownsville at the lower end of the river, Rio Grande. And then there were the Malaquites that lived on the Gulf Coast south of Corpus Christi. And some of the other bands mentioned before, Pacawan, Papanak, Irbiapame, Zarame, Pahalot, and Tilahi are some of the other groups that should be named. It has been suggested that the environment and habitat these nations lived in limited their ability to diversify because once they established the most successful way to survive and survival was so focused on specific resources, they had to stay focused. They were constantly working to provide for themselves and their loved ones. It would probably be incorrect to say that there was no influence from the outside. In fact, it would be foolish. But since the harsher way of life they followed would not have been attractive to outsiders, the influence could be considered minimal. They wore very little clothing. A deer hide breech cloth or loincloth was usually all a man would wear if he bothered to wear anything at all, along with sandals made from fibers or from animal skin. A robe made of, out of rabbit fur would have been worn and the weather were especially bad. They would often decorate these breech cloths that often fell below their knees with animal teeth, seeds, other adornments. Women usually wore skirts made out of grass, but they also wore animal hide skirts. They made blankets and shoes out of buffalo hides and rabbit skins. Men and women both grew their hair long down to the waist and sometimes used deerskin thongs to hold the hair ends together at the waist. Many pierced their lips with cane. Tattooing was very common with patterns on the face and body. The face tattoos could be various combination of lines, perhaps we think, signifying the band or ethnic identity. Body patterns of tattoos included broad lines and could be straight or wavy as they ran the full length of the torso. Mostly they lived in small movable huts. Uh, they used mats out of reeds or hides along with small saplings to make small circular dwellings that were easy to tear down and move. Their bows were made from tough mesquite roots, and they used deer sinew or braided lechuguela fibers for the bowstring. 
Cabeza de Vaca lived amongst them and said they were expert marksmen. Carved wooden sticks were an all-purpose tool that could be used for many purposes, from killing rabbits to grubbing for worms. They lived in groups whose families were usually all related to one another. Each band would have had a headsman, a leader, or sometimes a leader might have some authority over more than one band, but it probably wasn't that common. They were usually acknowledged as great hunters and warriors, but they did not have absolute power. As we will see with other indigenous peoples, they were extremely free and could easily shift their allegiance to another leader or band if they found a reason to. And the food or animals brought in to the band were shared by all. Each band was politically autonomous. Shamans or holy men were people of great influence, but providing food was also a primary activity for them. They served as doctors and mediated with the spirit world. Koatekons lived in a fear of a spirit called the evil one or evil thing. The evil thing would come and attack them in the night and leave visible scars. And this is one of the shaman's responsibilities to keep them safe from the evil thing. They had a wide variety between all the different bands of different religious ceremonies, rituals, and dances. Some lasted for three days and involved the consumption of something called the black drink, which would be made out of mesquite beans or peyote. Now, peyote was very important. That would grind it and use it as a tea that would provide visions, and visions and dreams were especially significant to their spiritual lives. Koatekon band members were marked by three important criteria. They were all related in some way. They were, for the most part, all equals. There was no extreme skill specialization. And they were all free, and in that they were beholden to no one above them, and that they could access any resource they needed around them equally. W.W. Newcomb wrote an excellent description of the brush country environment they faced in South Texas. South of the Balcones Escarpment and the San Antonio River lies an arid rolling plain. Much of it is covered with a dense, often impenetrable growth of stunted trees and thorny shrubs. Large game was scarce throughout the region. Though a few bison wandered into South Texas, there were deer, antelope, and javelina. There were a number of small edible animals, including rabbits and other rodents, reptiles, birds, and bugs. Not a single animal species was the focus for life like the bison was for the plains peoples. And altogether, there were not enough to be the primary focus. Plants, various cacti, mesquite beans, nuts, sotol, agave, and other plants are the heart and soul of the story of the Coatecons in South Texas. Each locality that a band controlled offered a variation in diet. Along the Nueces and Guadalupe, it is known that they had abundant use of pecans. Some of the more northern Coatecons were able to add bison to the menu. Because of the limitations and resources, they led a semi-sedentary life, moving seasonally to the area that offered them the best resources at that time of year, staying at the lowest a few days in a spot and at most a few weeks. Summer, except in times of drought, were the time of year when they could thrive. Winter was the harshest time of year, with starvation always a threat. The harshness and frequent threat of starvation led to some very hard acts, one of which was the killing of infant girls. Twins. If twins were born, usually only one was allowed to survive. These are facts 
that show the harsh realities of a subsistence patrilineal society. Harsh and ugly, but it happened. And because of the harshness and the, of the environment, the Koatakons needed a lots of space to gather resources. They were famous as having great endurance, and hunters could run for an entire day after a deer until the beast dropped from exhaustion. They would set traps and stakes to impale their prey as they chased them along regularly followed trails. They would dig pits to capture javelinas. They also would hunt communally, surrounding an area, driving animals to the center point where all would converge and take the prey. At night near streams, they would use torches to lure fish and shoot them with bows and arrows. They also used nets to catch fish. They ground almost everything they gathered or caught to preserve the food longer. And everything was basically an option for eating, including spiders, ant eggs, worms, lizards, snakes, earth, rotten wood, and deer dung, living pretty much just as their ancestors had for thousands of years. As we've seen from the past few lessons, they did whatever they needed to do to survive. But meat was not the number one food source. Plant life was their principal sustenance. They roasted the bulbs of the agave succulent, the lechaguilla plant, an agave species with long, tough, rigid leaves that have very sharp, hard points that are easily penetrate clothing, and the common sotol, a species of flowering plant in the asparagus family that's native to arid environments, and then ate them, ground them into flour, or saved them for later meals. One of the favorites to eat was prickly pear fruit. Mesquite trees provided their sweet and nutritious beans that grow in pods from the branches. They would eat the beans raw or like they were, or like most things, pound them into a flour and mix them with other fruits and berries. They also made mezcal from the agave. And when mixed with the red beans of Texas mountain laurel, the drink as one source said, was not only intoxicating, but also highly stimulating. They did go to war, and one observer, as I mentioned before, Cabeza de Vaca, noticed that feuds and raids were commonplace, but never against anyone with whom they were related. Camouflaging themselves with leaves and brush, warriors often raided at night, and the action would be quick and bloody. Formal battles were also held and ended up when warriors and ended when warriors had fired all their arrows. But even warfare, no matter how justified, could be an interference with their hunter-gathering lifestyle was usually only waged in the summer. They spread out even farther apart in smaller groups during the hard winter months. Cabeza de Vaca, who was one of a handful of survivors of a failed expedition to conquer the Floridas, shipwrecked on the coast of Texas in 1528, possibly on Galveston, and lived with the coastal and inland tribes for several years. We're going to look at him and his misfortunes and successes later, but he was fascinated by the Coaticans. He wrote, I believe these people see and hear better and have keener senses than any other in the world. They are great in hunger, thirst, and cold, as if they were made for the endurance of these and more than other men, by habit and nature. Now, after Davaka and his companions departed in the 1530s, apparently the Texas uh, Coatecans didn't have any worries from Europeans for about another hundred years. 
over 100 years, when the Spaniards began to make attempts in the late 1670s, 1690s to reenter the region, uh, this time for the establishment of missions to convert the peoples north of the Rio Grande and to put military presidios for protection and enforcement of order. We're going to go into greater detail on the, this period later because this lesson is one of just the main focus to be on the way of life of these peoples at contact. But we will touch on it a little bit here. Um, in 1700, the Spaniards established San Francisco Solano Mission below modern-day Eagle Pass on the Rio Grande. It was moved later to the homeland of the Payayas and was named San Antonio de Valero, the site of the modern-day San Antonio and the Alamo. And all five missions were erected in San Antonio area. Mission Nuestra Señora de la Purisma Concepción de Acuña, Mission San Francisco de la Espada, Mission San Antonio de Valero, Mission San Jose y San Miguel de Aguayo, and Mission San Juan Capistrano. A sixth mission, Mission San Francisco Xavier de Najara, was established in name, but very short-lived and no buildings were erected. Now, by the 1700s, disease had already hit them and had catastrophic effects on them just as it had to the Indians in the south. When Cortez landed, as one source says, the situation facing them at the time of Spain's new push for Texas missions, he said, in the early 1700s, Apaches were raiding from the north, deadly diseases traveled from Mexico, and drought lingered. Survival lay in the missions. By entering a mission, they forswore their traditional way of life to become Spanish, accepting a new religion and pledging fealty to a distant and unseen king. I'm not sure if this final statement is entirely true, because their traditions did carry on, and priests did know about some of the traditions and allowed it in some cases. But the missions did offer these people an opportunity, and many people did adapt to it. It wasn't just a sign here and everything was automatically perfect scenario. There were some violent things associated with the early missions that we'll discuss at a later date. There were people that were forced into servitude and slavery and sent to work in silver mines uh, in northern Mexico, Zacatecas area. We'll, and we'll talk about that in greater detail later. Um, they did not always embrace mission life, and there were records of frequent people running away from the missions. But what is clear, however, that the menace of the Apaches and the extreme destruction and loss of life from European disease placed them in a precarious position to where missions were an attractive option. The disease ravaged native populations. Smallpox had already begun to have a devastating effect as early as the end of the 1600s. Apache aggression and arrival of Comanche Nation in the 1750s made life even more dangerous for Spaniards and Coatecon alike. Newcomb, in his book Indians of Texas, states that by the arrival of Austin and his settlers from the United States in the 1800s, the Coatecons had dwindled almost to nothingness, and that in Mexico they had disappeared by 1900. Disease had been destructive, and many had married into Mexican families, but the modern Coatecon peoples would argue that they never went anywhere. They stayed, worked, and lived where they had for generations. Fewer in number, no doubt, but they have tried to maintain their heritage, culture, and identity despite pressures caused by the changes of history. They helped build the missions. They left their art painted on the interiors of the missions. They helped found the Texas cattle ranching culture 
and participated in one of the very first Texas cattle drives when Bernardo de Galvez called for a cattle drive in the 1770s to be driven east to help feed the American revolutionaries. Their praise and endurance was continued because many of them would serve as messengers along the miles-long circuit from each of the forts to the other. They were the first residents of San Antonio. They were there <laughs> when the mission was set up there. They've often been ignored, and as some modern Coatican leaders explain, it was out of fear that many of them hid their identities. Mickey Killian, in one report I read, explained that in the mid-1800s, some Native Americans blended into the Mexican, Spanish, and Tejano population because it was dangerous to be Indian. And to what to say of the mission experience of the Coatecans? We will be looking at it a lot closer and greater detail of what they experienced when they lived there and worked there. They had made a huge contribution to the establishment of the missions, though. Um, historian of Texas, Dr. Randolph B. Campbell, perhaps summarized it best in his book, Gone to Texas. And he says, evaluation of the mission system in Texas is not a simple matter. From one point of view, it is a story of heroic sacrifice to bring civilization and salvation to the Indians. From another, it is a matter of arrogant Europeans interfering with and destroying native cultures. The truth is a matter of individual choice. Once we look closer at the details, I don't know that it's necessarily a matter of individual choice. I, mentioned, I think it's a matter of combination of both of those things. We'll, we'll see some more. We'll try to get a better hold on it. What are the Coatecons today? There was a bill passed in the Texas House in April 2019 that would recognize the San Antonio-based tape pile Coatecan Nation as a Native American Indian tribe. They have a federal lawsuit pending against the Texas General Land Office and the Alamo Trust Incorporated seeking to have their voice heard in decisions regarding what happens to the human remains found on the Alamo grounds. At present, the lineal descendants of the indigenous people who lived in around the missions aren't included in these discussions because they are not a federally recognized tribe. And the Texas Historical Commission does not recognize the cemetery there to be one of historic importance. The Tate Pilums say, well, just because Davy Crockett's not buried there doesn't mean it's not historical importance because our ancestors who built these missions, who cared for the cattle herds, established the cattle culture here in Texas along with the Tejanos. We are historically significant, and we should be remembered. It's a fight ongoing. Um, it's worth keeping an eye on. As mentioned earlier, the Carrizo Comacruto tribe of Texas, who do not associate themselves as Coatecans, they did live in this area. That's why they are included in this group and are often included in discussions by historians and anthropologists as Coatecan. Not because their language was that, but because they shared an area and lived a similar lifestyle. They are very active along the border, farther south from San Antonio, with their own fights. They're fighting against pipelines. They're fighting against the border wall because these things are coming through. And they know where their ancestral burial grounds and holy sites are along the river. And they're seeing them be destroyed. And they're trying to fight this, what they consider an injustice of their stolen land, they want to protect these holy sites. We'll see what happens in the end. 
Um, you can, they both have excellent websites to follow. So I suggest if you want to know more about what's going on now, there's, there's, there's two good places to start the tape org, And then there's, uh, the Carrizo Comacruto tribe of Texas has a website. So yeah, that's, that's a very interesting lesson. I think I learned a lot from this. I learned that I didn't know that much about things that had been not that stressed in the past. We're going to keep talking about them because as we look at close contact with Europeans coming into the area, we'll come back to these people. I just wanted to use this lesson as an introduction to them and their way of life. And we've already kind of done a whole big, fast flyover of their entire history in a way. But this is, we're beginning with this group. Um, and in the future, we're going to next look at the coastal peoples, the Karankawas especially. So uh, I mentioned Tejanos and the establishment of the cattle culture. I want you to, I want to encourage you to go visit texastejano.com. They are a historical preservation and promotion of Texas Tejano heritage organization based out of San Antonio that have done some amazing work. They have amazing resources available on their website. Hopefully in the near future, they might even be providing the show with uh, Texano heritage moments. And if things go well, what I would like to see, if they can do it, is to have even a Tejano heritage episode each month. That would be very exciting because I've discussed this to the founder and another gentleman in the in the organization and their the depth of their knowledge and their passion for Tejano heritage is so great that it would be a really, really exciting thing that I'm looking forward to seeing in the near future. Other places you can go check out. Um, you can, of course, reach Texas History Lessons at as email, texashistorylessons at gmail.com, all lowercase. Um, we're on Twitter at Texas History L, and there's a Facebook uh, page for Texas History Lessons. Not that active on them as much as I'd like to be. I would like to get a, a website up with a reading list, recommended reading on all these subjects for each of the lessons. I'll provide recommended books that you can go check out for more information and web links to sources on the internet for history. If you want to look at a couple of really good Facebook groups that I've been, I've joined recently, um, if you live in North Texas area, there's the really great group run by a gentleman named Chuck Sims called Cook County Monuments, Markers, Places, and People Facebook group. It's a really well-run example of what how you can use social media to have a uh, like a communal educational experience. People sharing facts about places and people and markers and monuments. Um, not political in nature. Uh, it's a really it's a really educational and uh, rewarding site that I've been happy to be a part of uh, of, of following and reading about. There's another really, really good group called Texas Cattle Trails History Group. It has almost 11,000 members. I've joined it recently, and it's a, it's a fantastic group as well. Really information-packed. Um, so, yeah, check out all that. Uh, we'll be seeing you soon when we take a look at the Karankawas. 
and then we'll get into the Helmanos, the Tonkawas, the Caddos, and then the Apaches. And uh, thanks for listening. Adios. <laughs>